Welcome to the Gifford Provider Podcast, the podcast of Gifford Healthcare located in central Vermont. My name is Scott Fleischman, and Gifford is a nonprofit critical access hospital and federally qualified health center with a total of nine locations. The medical center in Randolph is home to a 24 hour emergency department, inpatient and rehabilitation units, a renowned birthing center, an accredited cancer program, advanced diagnostic imaging, surgery, and much more. Go to GiffordHealthcare.org to find the services we provide, the latest news, blogs, and information. Our guest this month is General Surgeon Dr. Alexander Sokolovsky. Dr. Sokolovsky joined Gifford earlier this summer along with his wife, Dr. Don Holman, also a general surgeon. Dr. Sokolovsky is going to be discussing colorectal cancer, the new guidelines for screening, the screening process, and how to reduce your risk for colorectal cancer. And before we get into our conversation, if you're watching us on YouTube, don't forget to click the subscribe button, like this video, tap the notification bell. That way you'll always know when we have new content for you to watch. And on our YouTube page, we have other podcasts, important information from our medical team, testimonials from our patients, as well as our employees. And you can now listen to the Gifford Provider podcast in your car or while just going for a walk. We are on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Just do a search for the Gifford Provider podcast follow the podcast and share it with your friends. Dr. Sokolovsky, thanks again for joining us this month. A very, very important topic. I mean, um, of the cancers that affect both men and women, colorectal cancer is the second leading cancer killer in the U.S. Um, so, and obviously with these new guidelines out, this is something that's very important people need to be aware of. Absolutely. Um, I think the colorectal cancer is uh, more dangerous uh, in a way that uh, it is very difficult to detect without um, actually visualizing it firsthand. So in other words, there are very few symptoms that could warn uh, a person that they may be developing this type of cancer since it lives inside the body. Um, and so uh, the prevention and uh, screening is becomes extremely important uh, starting at a fairly young age, uh, now down to 45 years of age. And we'll talk about why that changed to 45 in just a bit. But first, before we really get into this, let's dive into your background, your history a little bit. I know um, I get one of the I have the one of the best jobs here at Gifford because any of the new providers come through my office and I get to do a kind of a pre-screening interview and find out uh, people's history and how they ended up at Gifford. And your story is so unique. Uh, tell us why you decided to get into general surgery, your background. I mean, you've been all over. To say you've been all over the world is an understatement because uh, obviously growing up in, in, in Russia. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, I immigrated to the United States uh, when I was fairly young at 18 years of age um, and right after high school. And so uh, all my education post high school was done here in the States. Um, I went to college in St. Louis, Missouri and medical school in Chicago and you know, did my residency back in St. Louis. and have had uh, medical practices, surgical practices since then um, in four different areas of the country. Um, I've been doing this for over 20 years. Um, uh, I've always wanted to be a surgeon uh, once I got into medicine. Um, I, I love uh, 
uh, interacting with people uh, at that level, uh, having patients, having um, been able to um, uh, fix things that need to be fixed and making patients feel better. Uh, there is a, a little bit of uh, immediate gratification to surgery where you get to actually see the results fairly quickly. Um, uh, some of it is a more of a lifelong process, um, like you know colorectal cancer screening, and I get to know my patients for a longer period of time with that. Um, uh, I also want to mention that I'm not a gastroenterologist. You know, gastroenterology is only a fairly small part of my practice, uh, but it is an important part of my practice, and um, uh, colorectal uh, screening is, uh, I think, uh, one of the most important parts uh, because we get to prevent uh, uh, something that could potentially be fatal to a patient uh, in a fairly short period of time if it is missed. And uh, we mentioned your wife. You came here with, with your wife, uh, Dr. Don Holman, also a general surgeon who specializes in breast cancer and surgery. And you were uh, a resident, right, where she was in, in St. Louis, right? And that's, and that's no, it wasn't St. Louis, it was Chicago. Chicago, that's right. And that's where the two of you met. Right. I was a medical student in Chicago. She was a resident okay. um, in Chicago. And uh, so after my medical school um, there, uh, I moved to back to St. Louis for my residency, and then she finished residency and became uh, an attending surgeon at my hospital. So um, I, we were training together at different levels uh, for, um, I would say, eight years. Wow. Yeah. And you've been here at Gifford now a few months, right? Since uh, April. Since April. So what's the experience been like here so far? Uh, it's a great community. We love the town. Uh, the hospital is wonderful. Um, the one uh, thing I think that stands out about this particular hospital in this community is that uh, it seems that uh, at every level, uh, you know, from nursing to physicians to administration, um, uh, the number one priority is patient care. So everything's about the patient. Uh, everybody, everything is about uh, making sure that the patient gets taken care of at all levels. Um, there is essentially no uh, politics, there is no um, very min very minimal disagreement, uh, basically everything is geared toward patient care. And this is very refreshing. It's very difficult to find uh, nowadays with a more corporate approach to medicine in most other places um, where the uh, patient care is still uh, number one priority. Um, and if you're looking for more information, WCAX, the CBS affiliate here in um, Vermont, did a great story on Dr. Sokolowski and Dr. Holman, so you can check that out. You can um, see more also on our um, social media pages, our Facebook page, just look for uh, Gifford Healthcare, and on our Instagram page as well, um, Gifford Healthcare or Gifford Medical Center. And uh, just a, a great story, and we're just so happy and lucky to have uh, the two of you here. You're so versatile. General surgery is something that we've lacked here at Gifford for, for a while now, and um, I've been able to sit in on a couple of procedures, and it's just been really, really cool. And one of the procedures I got to sit in on was a colonoscopy. I got to see that procedure being done. And uh, again, it's when you're talking about screening colorectal cancer, is it's the number one way to prevent it. It's screening. First, before we go into that, you know, what can we can you tell us what colorectal cancer is? What you know, why? Why do we see it? What are maybe some of the risk factors? Well, colorectal cancer is a 
very similar to other types of cancer that we have we may have in our body. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the difficult part about colorectal cancer is it's, it's difficult to uh, catch early unless you look for it uh, proactively. Um, unfortunately, the symptoms of the disease don't occur um, until it is uh, well-developed and it frequently is uh, at a later stage where it's much more difficult to cure. Um, the Cancer develops from uh, a benign process, uh, from a benign polyp uh, inside the colon. This is not unlike, um, you know, if you can imagine having a, a, a small mole on your skin that could be there for many, 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 many years and uh, have, can be benign for many years. And then all of a sudden it starts changing after exposure to sun, light, etc., and uh, can become cancerous uh, on your skin. It's a very similar process um, uh, inside the colon. Unfortunately, inside the colon, we can't see it readily. So um, once the polyp, a benign polyp that could be present for a few years uh, becomes uh, malignant um, and grows larger, um, it is very difficult to detect un unless you go looking. Um, and so, um, once the cancer grows large enough, it can uh, cause some bleeding, it can cause obstruction, it can cause perforation of the colon, um, and uh, obviously it can spread to other organs, and that becomes eventually fatal if it's not treated. Um, so, uh, again, uh, prevention and uh, detection and diagnosis is number one priority. Nine out of every ten people whose colorectal cancers are found early and treated appropriately are still alive five years later. So it's so very important. It's just one of those, you, you've, like you said, it's something that you have to stay on top of early. Right. Yeah. If you um, think about, um, instead of thinking about treating cancer, if you think about preventing cancer, in other words, if we go in and do a colonoscopy in somebody who's 50 years of age, uh, or now 45 years of age, uh, which is recommended, um, and we remove uh, a few, one, two, or three, or more uh, benign non-cancerous polyps, which could have slowly grown into cancer had we not removed them earlier, we're thereby preventing the cancer from developing in the first place. And so, and then at the regular intervals, depending on what type of polyps they are, five years or 10 years, et cetera, um, we go back and remove more and more benign polyps. Um, those are the ones who would have become cancer if we didn't remove them. So we, we, we are uh, practically uh, preventing the cancer from happening um, in the first place, and that is the number one goal. And that is extremely effective, um, uh, very logical, and makes perfect sense to everybody. Um, unfortunately, um, in our society, the colonoscopy part of the procedure is stigmatized somewhat, and we need to destigmatize it and try, try to fight against that because the good that it does is so far outweighs the inconvenience or discomfort that associated with uh, sometimes with this procedure, uh, which is minimal nowadays because you know everybody goes to sleep for it, there's no pain involved, etc.
Sprain an ankle or twist a knee? Don't waste time waiting in the emergency room. Gifford Healthcare provider Kate Clemente is seeing same-day orthopedic appointments at Gifford's Sharon Health Center. My participation in sports throughout my lifetime has given me a great appreciation for the myriad of injuries that athletes can suffer from. Contact Gifford's Sharon Health Center, 802-763-8000, 802-763-8000. GiffordHealthcare.org, caring for you for life. Do you think that's part of it, uh, the, the stigma, the, the reason just people are just freaked out when they think about the procedure and that's really just gets in their head and they, they just... I think so. I think stigma is a big part of it. Um, I think uh, when I talk to my patients, I sometimes mention um, that, you know, there's no pain, there's no discomfort during the procedure. Um, it's no different than, actually, it's better than going to a dentist because at a dentist's office, you are going to feel that shot that's going to hurt or something's going to hurt at a dentist's office. Very rarely is it completely uh, pain-free. Um, whereas here with the colonoscopy, yes, there's a little bit of discomfort the day before where you have to drink the laxative, you know, and go to the bathroom. And, you know, obviously this is not pleasant. But that's really the extent of the unpleasantness uh, the day before. The procedure itself um, uh, is done under sedation, so there's absolutely no discomfort of any kind. There's no pain. Um, uh, it takes about 30 minutes, and, uh, you know, the only things that the patient remember is saying good night and going to sleep and then waking up in the recovery room saying is it over yet and of course it is over and there's no discomfort so um, once we get that propagated to uh, enough folks and it's understood properly I think the procedure will be destigmatized it may take a little while why did the age get reduced from 50 to 45 uh, that is because uh, we have been seeing more and more um, precancerous polyps as well as um, malignant tumors developing in a younger population. Um, there is a little bit of difference with race as well. So we were seeing, you know, the age 45 screening was uh, in uh, African-American populations earlier than the, in, in the uh, Caucasian population. But still, we're seeing that trend. Whether that trend is because we're screening more folks and finding it better than we did before, or whether that trend is because of the dietary um, preferences of our society, our Western society, or uh, genetic trends, it's hard to tell. But we are seeing that trend. Therefore, the American... Um, uh, Cancer Society had recently changed the recommendation to 45 years for the first screening colonoscopy from 50 years. We're still lagging a little bit behind with the insurance coverage. Not all the insurance companies uh, are on board with that, uh, but I think it's moving in that direction. And if you and it's one of those things where family history is very important, right? Family history is number one importance because this disease um, is very. Uh, much related to genetic changes. Uh, it, it, its um, uh, environmental impact is minimal or not as well studied. So um, when folks ask me, you know, what, what did I do to make this happen? Why do I have these polyps or why do I have this cancer? I, you know, I lead a healthy lifestyle. I eat healthy. I don't smoke. I don't drink. Um, so much of this condition is genetic that you can do everything right and you can still develop precancerous polyps and if you don't remove them in time they could still turn into cancerous uh, tumors and you know cause uh, obviously a more advanced disease um, having said that there are risk factors that that are 
you know, make the disease more likely to occur. Smoking, for example, uh, has been shown to increase all kinds of uh, cancer risk, uh, different types of cancers, not necessarily colon cancer, but colon cancer is one of them. Uh, and that's probably the one and only largest risk factor is the smoking. Um, alcohol to a certain degree as well, um, uh, but that was, that's kind of been less studied, less proven. And other than that, uh, it's all genetic. Uh, it's all family history, colon polyps or colon cancer, um, and whether or not that this particular patient has this particular gene that can cause, uh, that can initiate the, uh, the growth of that particular polyp. And uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, right, like Crohn's, that can also... Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's another uh, very um, well-studied and proven aspect of uh, increased cancer risk is any kind of... Well, there's two inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's disease and uh, ulcerative colitis, and both of those uh, show increased risk in colorectal cancer. So what's the difference between somebody who may not have any of that, family history, they don't smoke, they don't, um, you know, they're active, they don't have that, like I said, family history, they don't have um, bowel disease like Crohn's. What's the difference for those folks getting their screenings and how often they get the screenings compared to someone who has a little bit more of those risk factors? Uh, well, if you don't, okay, so if a patient doesn't have any family history of colorectal cancer or colorectal polyps, I think whether they smoke or not does not factor into this. It's mostly family history of colorectal cancer, colorectal polyps. Um, and uh, if they're 45 years of age or 50 years of age, um, depending on who you um, believe at this particular time, um, they should have their first screening colonoscopy done at that age. And then after that, if no polyps are found, um, they can have their next screening colonoscopy done in 10 years. So it's every 10 years if there are no risk factors involved. If um, a patient has family history of colorectal cancer, especially first degree relatives, you know, mother, father, sister, brother, children, um, then they should have their screening colonoscopy done every five years. Um, if the patient has polyps found on their first screening colonoscopy and there are uh, they're considered precancerous polyps adenomatous polyps there are multiple types of polyps but we'll just simplify that for just adenomatous polyps then uh, the gastroenterologist or the surgeon may recommend that they would have their next colonoscopy done sooner than that maybe in three years maybe in two years or in one year depending on what type of polyp it is and how worried that particular practitioner is um, about maybe um, returning of the polyp or that maybe some smaller polyps were missed uh, because they're hard to see because they're so tiny. And so they want to bring the patient back um, you know, within a year or two or three and make sure that nothing else uh, is there uh, still or again. You know, when you talk about the time frames for someone who doesn't have any risk factors, 10 years, to even just if you, to what you were just talking about, where it's maybe one or two years, you know, for the, what we're talking about here, that's a, a, that's a pretty good time gap. I mean, it's not like you're being asked to come in once a, every couple of weeks or once a month to have a procedure like this done. So I guess it's just going back to your talk about the stigma of it all, you know? I mean, it, it's not like this is something you're, you're being asked to do routinely. It's, and so there's, you know, when so much of your health is on the line for something like this, it just makes it that much more important, especially when you consider that, again, it's, you know, if there are no factors, it's once every 10 years. I, I agree. I think it's very, um, 
non-invasive procedure to begin with, and also it is fairly uh, infrequently. So and I always go back to the to the dental comparison. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> I guess it's uh, my, one of my pet peeves. You know, I moved uh, to a different part of the country uh, recently, and um, I had a new dentist and. And they insisted that I have uh, the cleaning every six months. I've always done a cleaning once a year, but that, they, they insisted it was six, every six months. And, and I can't tell that, uh, with all honesty, that the cleaning is painless, to me anyway. So here I am going every six months uh, for a painful procedure that lasts about half an hour uh, as compared to a procedure. And, and I guess I should also say that if... I didn't clean my teeth every six months, I wouldn't develop cancer and I wouldn't potentially um, have to deal with uh, saving my life. Whereas you have a procedure that's preventing cancer that's done every 10 years or every five years, depending on the family history, um, and it's painless and the benefit is so much greater than any kind of discomfort or inconvenience that can be caused by it. So to me, um, honestly, that's... Uh, uh, I guess for no better uh, word is a no-brainer, you know, it, the benefit you get from it uh, is, is great. You know, in the dentist chair, you can't fall asleep. It's too, it's too painful. As much as you try to fall asleep, you just can't. Here, you can, you know, they, you put out and, you know, you wake up and everything's done. So, um, we talk, you talked about tobacco being a, a big factor. Um, what about um, obesity? Staying active, being on a, on a good diet, all, all things you can control can, can help? There are multiple factors that have been looked at and, and studied, some peripherally, I guess. Um, obesity, um, uh, diets such as uh, you know, staying away from red meats and eating more fiber-oriented uh, diet. Um, use of vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin B, uh, vitamin D. Um, all uh, that has been looked at, uh, even aspirin, you know, we looked at uh, taking a, a baby aspirin every day. Does that decrease the chance of developing cancer? Um, uh, along with some other medications, um, such as, you know, arthritis type medications. Um, uh, you know, there, there are questions about all that. Uh, I think the evidence may be there, but the evidence is somewhat weak. So, you know, as physicians, you know, we used to... Um, make recommendations based on a, as strong of evidence as we can possibly find. And, and, and the studies have been reproduced, uh, that, ha that have been reproduced and that have been, um, uh, you know, appropriately vetted. Um, so, yes, a healthy lifestyle is always a good thing. But having said that, um, from my personal experience, I can tell you that there's plenty of folks out there who lead a very, very healthy lifestyle. Um, and for some reason choose not to have the screening done. And unfortunately, I've seen way too many of those folks that come, that come to me in their 60s or sometimes even 70s for their first colonoscopy because now they have symptoms and they end up with you know terrible, terrible colorectal cancer disease. And so uh, I, I don't think, I think that um, a healthy lifestyle is important, but it shouldn't put you in a false sense of security uh, that just because you lead a healthy lifestyle that you're immune from developing this disease or any other types of disease, um, you know, uh, coronary artery disease, et cetera, et cetera. What is it about tobacco that causes issues? What is it about, you know, certain foods like meats like that causes those issues? 
See, that's part of the problem is we don't know exactly the um, uh, molecular uh, uh, mechanism of uh, why um, uh, people have uh, increased risk of developing cancer if they smoke, for example, or they uh, eat more red meat and less fiber in their diet. Um, and that's why we can't be 100% certain that... Um, that there's a direct relationship, you know. Um, so uh, we see the trend. Uh, we see that, okay, well, smokers, you know, we, there's there more smokers that do develop this condition than people who don't smoke. But uh, that not without understanding a true molecular relationship, it's difficult to make that jump that say, okay, you, you, this is a direct uh, cause. Um, so I, I really can't answer that question. I, I don't know. And if there are some direct molecular uh, mechanisms, I just... I'm not aware of any. You talked about symptoms and being a sign of that things are too late. You know, once people could, could be too late if people start experiencing symptoms. So what are some of the symptoms that people would experience? Well, um, it depends on how far the disease is advanced. So uh, when the polyp uh, turns into a cancerous lesion, the cancer is defined by its ability or its, well, I guess ability is to grow and it grows uncontrollably. So it never stops growing. So in other words, a cancerous tumor will never get smaller. It will only get bigger. And as it grows, um, uh, more and more cells slough off and uh, more and more ulceration develops. So uh, the tissue becomes uh, uh, unstable and sloughs off and ulcerates and causes bleeding. So uh, if the, any bleeding or black dark stools are seen, which is a sign of old blood that's uh, coagulated or blood clots, et cetera, in the stool, that's uh, a, a very concerning sign for possibly developing colorectal cancer. Um, um, obviously, changes in bowel habits, you know, the, as the mass grows, it obstructs more and more the lumen of the colon. So. Um, uh, more of a symptoms of constipation, difficulty passing stool, uh, bloating, um, indigestion, uh, nausea, you know, things of that nature. Um, and then obviously, you know, if the tumor causes perforation of the bowel, then that's an acute issue, then, you know, it causes peritonitis and, and that leads patient to go to the hospital, the emergency department, because it becomes an emergency. And that's why, I mean, discovering this uh, late is it's so tough to treat. It's absolutely tough to treat because not only uh, is it very symptomatic um, and it becomes urgent in, in a lot of cases, but also um, uh, the, the cancer cells uh, uh, don't stay in one place. So they will travel. Um, you know, every part of our body um, is supplied by um, uh, oxygen. And in order for the uh, body parts to receive oxygen, that's what blood supply is for. So we have blood vessels that carry oxygen to the um, organs, including the colon. Uh, but also we have to withdraw the um, used up oxygen in, in, in the form of uh, CO2 and other used up nutrients, et cetera. And so that, uh, some of it is done by the blood vessels and some of it done, is done by the lymphatic system. And so the first um, uh, cancer cells that travel away from the tumor uh, end up in the local lymph nodes. And so, and if once they overwhelm the lymph nodes, then they travel further and they travel to 
different organs, uh, first of it usually being the liver, because that's where the, the drainage from the GI tract um, first goes to. And so then you're talking about cancer deposits uh, setting up shop in the liver um, and then maybe in the lungs and maybe in other areas and uh, maybe even inside the peritoneal cavity, you know, throughout the soft tissues of the abdominal cavity. Um, so then we're talking about, the, uh, you know, st stage four cancer with distal metastatic disease. And so that becomes very difficult to treat or, or cure at, at a certain point. Yeah. So we want to avoid all that. Get your screening. It's very simple. Kaylin Dupree, a registered nurse, tells us why she works at Gifford Healthcare. I'd only had rehab experience. When applying to other places in the area, no one would take a chance on me, and Gifford did. Gifford has immediate openings for nurses. Go to giffordhealthcare.org careers and apply today. You get to do a little bit of everything, and no matter what shift that you work, you learn, and you grow, and you excel. Gifford Healthcare, caring for you for life. Pretty straightforward. Um, so the uh, after the appropriate bowel preparation the night before, um, so taking the laxative, uh, cleaning out the colon, the patient comes into the hospital in the morning uh, of the procedure, we'll uh, get the patient, uh, put the IV in, uh, get the patient all comfy and uh, uh, bring him into uh, to the endoscopy suite and uh, sedate the patient, uh, basically. So it's like uh, having a nap for the patient. Uh, the procedure takes about half an hour usually. Um, uh, we um, use a, a flexible endoscope, uh, which is approximately uh, two centimeters or a centimeter and a half uh, uh, th um, thick tube, I guess you could say that. And it's flexible. Um, uh, uh, it's about six feet long, uh, and it, uh, so we can advance it all the way to the very uh, high part of the colon, where the colon is actually joining with the small intestine. And that way we can examine the entire colon uh, from the top all the way to the bottom uh, uh, where the rectum is. Um, and then so we will inflate the colon with uh, gas. Uh, we, at this facility uh, and uh, many other facilities nowadays, we use uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, because it absorbs much faster than regular air uh, and causes a lot less um, uh, or pretty much none uh, of the cramping and, uh, you know, gassiness after the procedure. Um, and so we inflate the colon with air so we can see and we can actually directly visualize the wall of the colon uh, throughout the entire colon. Um, frequently, we will also go through the uh, what's called an ileocecal valve and actually get into the small intestine as well and, and visualize the, uh, the distal part of the small intestine also, just to make sure there's no polyps there, no uh, abnormalities. Um, and, and definitely visualize the entire colon. If we see any uh, kind of growths or polyps, we remove them right there and then. Uh, we have small tools uh, to do that, uh, little forceps and little snares, etc. We use cautery frequently uh, to cauterize the area that, of the polyp that we remove so there's no bleeding afterwards. Um, uh, and if the, we, we see something that's larger, a, a larger tumor, a larger mass, we take biopsies. Uh, for appropriate diagnosis, we will mark the area, we'll inject some dye so that if, in case we do have to go to surgery, we know exactly where that tumor is located so we can remove it uh, with the least possible amount of surgery necessary. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Then we wake up the patient up and you know, give them something to eat and something to drink and, and they're on their way home within about 
half an hour, 45 minutes after the procedure is complete. And it's safe? It's very safe. Uh, I mean, there are risks. Any procedure carries risks. Um, I always tell my patients there are two risks that I talk to them about. Uh, one is bleeding. You know, if we're taking polyps or taking biopsies, uh, those little areas uh, can bleed a little bit. That's why we cauterize. But usually uh, it's self-contained bleeding and stops on its own pretty quickly. Every once in a while there is uh, delayed bleeding from an area where we take a polyp out. Very rarely is it clinically significant. In other words, we very rarely have to give a patient a blood transfusion or you have them admitted to the hospital or anything like that. Um, uh, and then even a more rare complication, but obviously a more serious complication, is a perforation of the bowel. So you know, anytime we put any type of instrument inside of the intestine or uh, any part of the intestine, uh, colon being part of it, uh, there is always a risk that that bowel can get perforated or ruptured by that instrument. Uh, this is extremely rare occurrences. Uh, I think um, in my career of 20 years, um, I've done you know many many thousand of these procedures, and I have had two bowel perforations from them. So yes, it does happen. It is extremely rare, and it and we really really careful to avoid those. So if you see something that's alarming to you, a polyp, or in, in the, you, you will remove it during this procedure, what if there's something there that's, that is a red flag, something that you, you know, is there, what's the procedure then, and how quickly is the turnaround time for somebody to find out exactly what's going on? Uh, once we remove the polyp, uh, we'll send it off to a pathology department uh, and have uh, our uh, very, very good pathologists um, uh, section it in small pieces uh, and put it under a microscope and examine it. And, and then they will tell us uh, what type of polyp it is, uh, how much uh, of a malignant potential it has, if any. Um, and it, that's within about a week we get that result. And I usually see my patient... Uh, in follow-up uh, seven to ten days after the procedure and give them the results and then tell them, you know, when their next colonoscopy should be. So there are people out there that are still, maybe they hear this conversation, but they're still a little skittish, undecided, and they say, well, I don't need to do that. I can just take an at-home test and go from there. And so there's a lot of debate about at-home tests. I know we've talked about it before. Your thoughts on at-home tests and if they're really reliable? Well, there are several at-home tests. Um, we used to, um, for a long time, rely on uh, just detecting blood in the stool. Um, and uh, it's a good test uh, to try to detect microscopic blood in the stool. Um, unfortunately, it does not detect uh, any precancerous polyps. It detects um, either a cancer that's already so large that it's already bleeding. Uh, or it pretty much just can catch bleeding hemorrhoids, which have nothing to do with cancer. So it's a very, it's a test that doesn't have very good sensitivity or specificity uh, for colorectal cancer specifically. Uh, in the past few years, we've had a couple of different uh, additional tests, the FIT test, the FIT, um, oh, it's an immunoglobulin test, or uh, we have a Cologuard, which I'm sure a lot of folks have seen on commercials on TV, a uh, very cute commercial. And Cologuard is a good test. It does detect uh, uh, certain DNA patterns uh, from the uh, colorectal cancer. So it's more than just a blood test. However, uh, even though it's fairly good in detecting developed colorectal cancer, it has 92% effectiveness in catching colorectal cancer. 
which means it has 8% chance of missing colorectal cancer. So I always, as a, as a physician who does this for a living, I always look at that side of it, not the 92% side of it. But in any case, it does have 92% uh, chance of detecting cancer. Unfortunately, um, uh, the literature that uh, was used to approve uh, this uh, medication also states that it detects between 42 and 50% of polyps that are greater than one centimeter. Uh, which means about a half an inch. So um, most of the precancerous polyps we remove are in a range of two to five millimeters, so half a centimeter. So the Cologuard detects 42 to 50% of polyps that are greater than one centimeter. So they, it misses over 50% of polyps that are greater than one centimeter. So it misses a lot more, if not I would say the vast majority of the polyps that are less than one centimeter, which are most of the polyps that we remove mm -hmm. that are precancerous. Um, so in my mind, Cologuard is useful, uh, but I don't think it's as useful for prevention of the cancer as it is for detection of the cancer. So, and, and I think that is the main um, uh, thought uh, uh, difference that I have with uh, some of the patients that I see and some of the providers that I talk to is that I don't think there's that compre full comprehension of detection versus prevention. Um, it's good to be able to detect the cancer early, but it's better in my mind to prevent the cancer from happening in the first place. And I don't think that Cologuard does that. And I think the Cologuard folks understand that, and that's why they publish this, this research uh, openly, and you can see it you know, in their own literature. Um, so we have to be careful. I think Cologuard has uh, excellent potential for folks who either absolutely will not do a colonoscopy, they refuse to do it, and they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it, then absolutely it's better than nothing. It is definitely uh, better to have that done. Or for the folks who cannot have a colonoscopy, uh, they're medically uh, not cleared for a colonoscopy. They're s so ill with other things that they cannot uh, withstand the procedure. Absolutely for that purpose, they should have a Cologuard test. But for a person who is healthy and who can undergo a colonoscopy safely, um, a colonoscopy is still the, st the gold standard uh, by, by a long stretch. You talked about having, uh, over your 20 years, seeing patients and having the colonoscopy done when it is too late. Tell us, this, do you have any stories of the reverse? Somebody coming in and you catching something that could have turned out to be pretty bad. Oh, I have very many stories of, of that. Um, uh, you know, as I said, you know, a few years in practice, um, I've seen I've done many colonoscopies on folks uh, who are 50 or who are in their late 40s. That's their first screening colonoscopy with absolutely no symptoms. And we determine, we detect uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, the majority of those folks, it's a very early stage. Uh, so stage one, so once we do the operation and remove that part of the colon with the cancer and determine that there is no spread further than the colon, then uh, a lot of those folks don't even need uh, chemotherapy or any other um, type of uh, adjuvant treatment afterwards. Um, you know, and it, it runs a gamut. I, I've seen, uh, had patients, that took, have taken care of patients who um, I do their colonoscopy and they're in their mid-50s or early 60s um, and find the cancer and, you know, it is a stage two or stage three and it doesn't need to have uh, chemotherapy done. 
but most of those folks are cured afterwards. You know, as long as it's not a uh, you know very advanced stage four disease, uh, most of those folks can be cured. And therefore, the earlier the colonoscopy is done, um, and I, I would go as far as to say, one colonoscopy at 50, and no more colonoscopies afterward, given that nothing is found at 50, is better than no colonoscopy at all. So even if you're not going to do a colonoscopy every 10 years afterwards, still go and get your first colonoscopy done for first initial screening to make sure that there's nothing precancerous in there, at least for your peace of mind, for your doctor's peace of mind. And then you make that further decision later in life. But it's very important to have that first one done. And now that the, um, that the recommended age is now 45, you know, just if you get it done on your, you know, right around that time, you put it and, and nothing's found, you've, you've, now you don't have to worry about it for, for a long time before you have to think about it again. And you just kind of get it out of the way. And it's, you know, again, when you think about the, this particular type of cancer and how it's something that when, the, when you start to get the symptoms, it might be too late. I mean, this is just one of those few things that screening is really the only way to, to, to treat it and get rid of it early. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you definitely do not want to wait for symptoms on colorectal cancer. Uh, colorectal cancer is, or pretty much any type of internal cancer is not like, you know, I have shortness of breath. I got to go check my heart. I've got, you know, my, my something hurts. I've got to go check it out and see if there's something wrong with it. Colorectal cancer will not give you that warning. Just like any other, you know, breast cancer will not give you that warning unless you actively look for it. You know, um, esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, none of this will give you that warning. Fortunately, with breast cancer and colorectal cancer, we have ways of detecting it early. Some of the others, like pancreatic and esophageal, or lung cancer even, there's no way to, I mean, we don't have a developed system of prevention and screening for those cancers. So for colorectal cancer, we have one. So let's use it. Let's uh, be proactive with it. Well, uh, Dr. Sokolovsky, you've given us uh, really great information here. And hopefully, if this has just encouraged one person to, uh, to convince them to, to go get their colonoscopy, I think, um, you know, we've done our job here today. And so it, it's really... A you know, very fascinating. I mean, it certainly was fascinating to sit in on a colonoscopy and, and see the procedure done. And, um, you know, for people that might have those fears or, you know, hopefully we can put a little bit of those to rest. Sounds great. Uh, it's my pleasure taking part in this. I appreciate the opportunity. And I, like you, I hope that uh, the community understands that we're there for them. We're here to um, make sure that they're healthy and that nothing bad happens to them. And that's really the only reason we're here. For more information on the general surgery department here at Gifford, you can call 802-728-2430. Again, 728-2430. We are talking, we were talking about uh, colonoscopies, colorectal uh, cancer screenings, but the Gifford general surgery team of Dr. Sokolowski and Dr. Holman do a wide variety of procedures and you can check out all of those procedures on our website, 
giffordhealthcare.org. Click on services, look for general surgery, and you'll see their lovely photos on the website, and then it'll give you a little bit more background information on what they do. And that's going to do it here for the Gifford Provider Podcast. Again, thank you for joining us, whether it's on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We do appreciate it. And uh, leave a comment or uh, share with your friends. Subscribe, download. We really do appreciate it. And until next time, this is Scott Fleischman for Gifford Healthcare. We'll see you next time on the Gifford Provider Podcast. <music>